technology is accelerating so fast and you know the big winners of this pandemic have been the big tech companies we've got to embrace technology and i i struggle with that all the time you know in a hotel it's all about hospitality it's all about people it's all about great food and beverage experiences wonderful rooms and spas and all of these things are very personal but unfortunately technology in the meantime is taking over everything that's happening and whether it's hospitality or other sectors you've got to as a leader continually to ask the question what technology do i need for my business to compete otherwise i will be disrupted Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tingser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. BizSimply is an all-in-one HR, workforce management, roads and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. We join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in the way we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. In this week's conversation, we're joined by Chris Hartley, who is the CEO of the Global Hotel Alliance. They represent a collection of 35 privately owned hotel brands with over 570 hotels in 85 countries. And Chris shares with us how they support their members through a loyalty platform and the power of giving them big data. He also shares how the Alliance member has been hit during the last 12 months with revenue down more than 60%. And he underlines that most of the members own and operate their own hotels, so the pain has been significant. He also talks about business travel that is down with 90% and he does not expect it to recover anytime soon. So this will have a massive impact on the industry as they try to find a way back. He also shares his thought on the future of how the travel market look. And he sees leisure travel will recover strongly and quickly when restrictions are lifted across the world with staycation coming first. When it comes to business travel, he's much more pessimistic and he also will share some reasons for that. We talk about how talent could become a regional challenge, especially in the UK and in some extent the US, where hospitality often is not looked at a career path as you see in some countries in Central Europe. He believes that it would be difficult for some operators to find the talent they need to rebuild. Along the way, we've missed many other themes. Is hotel still a great investment? The power of your local market? Chris's CEO and hospitality learnings, the power of technology, the importance of transparency and clear communications in these times, the importance of having high energy as a leader and much more. But before you tune in, please sign up to our weekly newsletter at hospitalitymavericks.com, packed with more Mavericks insights, strategies and tools. Now grab notebook, pen and drink and let's get started. Welcome uh, to a great conversation today, and uh, we have Chris Hartley from GHA joining us today, all the way from Dubai, and I think it's early morning where Chris is, but we're going to be talking about uh, probably quite a lot of things. We're going to talk hospitality, that's for sure, and the dynamics around hospitality right now. Um, it's a global phenomenon that, that we we in challenging times, hotels, restaurants, whatever it is, and, and we're going to dive into what it actually means, especially for for smaller hotel brands and how they actually, you know, operate in this and what they're innovating on and what, what they're doing to prepare 
to the new now or post-COVID. Call it what you want. So I'm very excited to introduce you to uh, Chris. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you and look forward to chatting a little bit about what's happening in hospitality and uh, maybe a little bit about what's happening over in this part of the world as well, since we're a, a pretty exciting part of the world to be in at the moment. Yeah, I think it's you and New Zealand. Dubai and New Zealand is one of the, 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 the safe spots, you can say, where it feels like life is more normal than anywhere else where we, in most places you're in lockdown or some kind of restriction. I said uh, I presented your 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 organization before GHA, but I will leave it to you to present it in the best possible way. How would a, a great presenter present what you are about, Chris, and what uh, the work you're doing in the GHA? Sure. Well, um, GHA is Global Hotel Alliance, and I guess uh, I should be after 17 years, um, since we're 17 years old this week. Um, I should be able to. Um, present what we do pretty well uh, by now. I was actually the first employee um, those 17 years ago, came from Kempinski, and perhaps it's my story with Kempinski that gives you um, a little bit of insight as to what Global Intelligence is about. So Kempinski in those days, so that's uh, back in the late 90s, um, when I uh, was working with them, was owned by Lufthansa. So many of the hotel groups in the world were owned by airlines. Um, we were very lucky um, at the time to have a great parent company, Lufthansa. And basically that meant um, for me as uh, head of marketing at the time, it was a pretty straightforward job. Basically, whatever Lufthansa was doing from a marketing perspective, we were able to tag along with that. And um, it was great. They, they helped us grow the hotels that we had because people wanted to do business, that people wanted the Kempinski brand that was associated with Lufthansa and customers tended to follow Lufthansa's advice as to where to stay. Um, and so to a certain extent, we we literally um, lived off the oxygen from Lufthansa and suddenly they sold us, as did many of the airlines um, in the 80s and 90s sold off their hotel assets. Um, you think of Pan Am owned Intercontinental, Air France owned Meridian. I mean, it's quite interesting, the history of airline ownership of hotels, which was very synergistic um, in terms of business, especially in the early days of travel. And so we found ourselves um, in the early 2000s with no parent company. We'd basically lost um, our umbilical cord and suddenly no marketing budget um, and uh, a whole different uh, needs in terms of distribution because we, did, we, we didn't have that link into Lufthansa's distribution systems. So I said to our board at the time at Kempinski, we need to partner up with other companies around the world. There's no way that with the tiny marketing budget you're giving me that we can expect like we did with Lufthansa to reach customers in the United States or uh, Asia um, or all corners of the globe where we needed to, to, to reach our audiences and obviously competing with the big brands. And so we, we decided in 2004 to create this alliance, which has become Global Hotel Alliance. Um, we had four founding partners at the time. Um, they uh, have evolved a little bit, but mostly still with us. And we decided that we were going to collaborate around distribution, around sales, and around marketing. And what that became over time, having originally been a, a business to business proposition, a partnership proposition, was we um, later in the decades, around 2010, we decided to collaborate fully on shared customers. So basically, we created a, a loyalty platform, um, a CRM platform that enabled us to reach 
um, our shared customer audience across the globe by, by creating a common loyalty program, which, which we call Discovery. So that's what the alliance is. Today, we grew from those four founding brands, Kempinski, Omni, Ridges, and Pan Pacific. So all under the alliance umbrella today to become 35 brands. Um, and together, those independent brands collaborate on those same things. So primarily loyalty today, um, but also sales and distribution. And together, we're able to compete more effectively with the big brands. And the big brands have grown considerably in that period of time. The Marriott's, the Hilton's, um, some new brands, big brand conglomerates like Accor have emerged. And we not, not only need to compete with them, but we also need to look at the outside influences, the outside forces like the OTAs that developed during that time as well. Um, and so we, we collaborate, um, we share customer data, we share technology um, to help these small independents, fiercely independent brands that don't want to be part of the big chains to compete with the, certainly in terms of marketing, um, to, to be able to compete for every customer um, it, it, more effectively than, than any of these individual brands could do on their own. When you get a, get a member of your alliance, uh, what kind of marketing support is it typically you do? Is it a, the, 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 the loyalty program that's the heart of it? Or is it the, actually the, the help and support actually getting your property out there so travelers can find it? I'd say that the loyalty program now, the loyalty platform is at the heart of everything we do. We're very much a business-to-business organization. So unlike, for example, people listening to this may know leading hotels of the world, preferred hotels of the world, they tend to be representation organizations that are effectively doing your sales and marketing and distribution for you um, as a hotel, certainly in, in, in what is international sales and marketing outside of the, the, these individual hotels, local markets. We're actually supporting brands who have a corporate infrastructure. So we're not actually replacing their own sales and marketing efforts. We're not replacing their brand in any way. We're actually providing a platform. So it's interesting that what we're, whereas I say loyalty is at the heart of everything we do, and it is, it's more around data. It's the ability to aggregate data. And for that, we need technology, which is why we have Oracle as a technology partner and shareholder in the business. So I'd say today that the primary value that we bring is this aggregation of products and services that are too expensive for a small brand to operate on its own, but we're not a replacement of corporate resources. So Kempinski or Pan Pacific or Minor Hotels, for example, it's one of our big shareholders in Thailand. They have significant corporate offices looking after their brands and their hotels, but we're basically able to aggregate um, because of the size and the collaboration, we're able to aggregate a lot of the products and services across um, many more hotels and therefore bring more efficiency and, and uh, more cost-effective uh, platform on which these brands can then operate. Yeah, it's interesting the way you uh, you see that in hotels, like at alliances and stuff like where smaller groups go together. And in the restaurant world I come from, it's not as known, maybe locally, but that, that peer-to-peer learning as well, I guess, especially in these times, becomes very critical. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of um, what we do is share best practice. We the peer-to-peer uh, thing that you mentioned um, fits exactly with our collaborative approach. We are actually um, an alliance of 35, if you like, in, in terms of the way we operate, 35 equal brands that have an equal voice that share in the strategic direction of the alliance and, and contribute to, to those discussions. And as part of that, we have regular meetings at CEO level, at operations level, at marketing level where there is very much a sharing peer-to-peer of best practice. 
you don't have the politics of the big brands because we're not we're not a corporate organization we're a collaborative alliance and so people are sitting around the table looking at the ways in which they can improve their businesses by sharing knowledge experience and ultimately technology and products and services with each other without that political or competitive uh, element that you have in, in different styles of organizations. So yes, it's very much about collaboration and peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning and best practice, which is at the heart of everything we do. Could you, in a, in a short way, give us a bit of an overview about uh, how COVID um, have impacted you uh, and your members as an alliance? Because everybody has been hit, as we talked before, we're not live. It's, uh, you know, life in general, it's probably okay, but uh, life in hospitality looks very dire in the moment. And we are, or we are just waiting to find out what the, the judgment is in principle. Yeah, exactly. I, it's uh, look. It's been a terrible year uh, for hospitality. There's, there's no way to say it any differently. You only need to listen to the 2020 results that are being announced by the big brands at the moment. Marriott, uh, Accor. I was reading uh, about last week, um, and the, the huge losses that that they incurred in 2020. It's interesting because when you aggregate all of the data that we manage uh, by the end of 2019. Um, the Discovery Loyalty Program turned over about $2 billion um, in rooms revenue in 2019. So quite a significant amount of money going through the loyalty program. By the end of last year, that was down around 60% um, over 2019. So we, we'd we fallen down to below a billion dollars from above $2 billion. So that that sort of loss of revenue is 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 just devastating to any business. And what you have to understand about the alliance, which is very different for the big brands, is that our brands tend to own and operate their hotels. So these are these are owners where loss of revenue goes straight to their own bottom lines, whereas the, the big brands, mostly today franchises, um, obviously they use huge amounts of revenues uh, themselves when, when, when the top line of the hotels goes down, but they're not bleeding, uh, or at least they control the bottom line in a very different way to hotel operators who own their assets to. And so the pain for our brands has, has been uh, particularly bad this year um, well, or during, during the pandemic. And of course, it continues into 2021. It wasn't like 2020 was the end of it. So, I mean, just to so, so, so I tell you, revenues are down 60% um, at the worst phase of the pandemic, which was Q2, they're obviously down as much as 80 or 90%. But just to put it another, just to give you another amazing statistic, business travel on which so many brands built their fortunes over the years, if you like, sort of the, the, the sort of core segment for many brands historically um, has been business, international business travel. That was down 95% in Q2 last year. By the end of the year, it was still down 90%, and I'm expecting it to be down about 90% in Q1. So it just sort of gives you a sense of the scale of the devastation to the hospitality sector. And you you can't recover from that very easily. So to a certain extent, hotels have been protected by government uh, policy, which has been very generous across the world um, to, to support the hospitality industry. Of course, people in different countries would give you different views on exactly how each government has, has, has supported them. But Generally speaking, there's been a generous government response to protect the hospitality sector and the travel sector generally, because of course airlines have been 
uh, e equally hard hit. But the question is, how, how, how do you recover from that? And, and what will that change um, look like when, when a recovery eventually comes? Because it's not as simple as saying, when will business come back to 2019 levels? It, it won't in the foreseeable future. Some segments will never recover. So, so what we're looking at now is trying to understand you know, what, what travel looks like post-COVID, which segments are going to recover quickest, and what can we do as an alliance to help our brands through this? Because we're also an organization that its own revenues have been devastated. We're not designed to make money for ourselves as such. We're, we're, we're primarily designed to make money for our, our member brands. But of course, we haven't been able to do that either. So we have to ask ourselves what our purpose is in a world where we can't generate revenues for, for our hotels um, as, we, as we've struggled to do in the last 12 months. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty horrendous time for the industry and the, the pain continues. And, and it, it's likely to continue um, right through to the end of 2021. The question is, how quickly will we recover, assuming a recovery is, 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 is on the horizon when these vaccinations start to have an impact? But yeah, uh, it, difficult to, to put into words anything to sort of uh, reassure that the, the, sec the, the sectors in good health are, are, are going to be in good health again soon, because it, it's not. I guess the reality is when you, you say the facts, the data is that it's a, you are you're heading towards a new future where you are not 100% sure what your core business is going to be. And I guess when you talked about business travel, that's probably never in in a decade going to recover to, to the same. Or maybe it's never going to come back in the same level because they have now have learned there's so much that can be done online as we are doing right here now um so what what is your uh what do you think is the kind of travel market we'll see from what you see now the data what is what are the the the, the small trends you can see around the travel market well, i guess that we are all desperate there's a pinned up demand for getting out moving around uh and i think first i thought it was only a local thing but now i can definitely feel that People are definitely talking about, I just want to get out and travel. I want to go on the other side of the world again. What are you seeing and, 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 and uh, what is your view on this? Because, uh, of course, you can't know. There's no crystal ball right now. I think, I mean, I, I'd say that I see the recovery in two very different ways um, across the... If you, if you just divide our business simply into business or leisure travel and say, well, how, how do I see the recovery? I think leisure travel will recover very strongly and very quickly once travel restrictions are lifted. So if you just talk about domestic travel, we've already seen a recovery in domestic travel in countries that weren't completely locked down. So um, even here in Dubai, where there's, you know, it's not a huge country, um, we've seen people um, spending a lot of money um, for staycations and um, local leisure activities during, um, the, during the last year of the pandemic when we haven't been able to travel overseas very much um you've seen it in we certainly we've got a lot of hotels in australia for example we've seen strong domestic recovery in australia strong domestic recovery in china in north america so i think the continuing recovery of domestic travel um especially leisure um is, is going to continue but until governments lift restriction on international travel and that's going to be sporadic for the time being because of the different way the vaccination programs are rolling out I don't think you, you, you're going to see an immediate return in 2021 for large amounts of international leisure travel. However, 
what you are going to see is pockets um, where business starts to come back. I say leisure business starts to come back. So we saw it over Christmas and New Year, for example, in the Maldives and here in Dubai. So Dubai basically created corridors, in particular with the United Kingdom. So there was a huge amount of traffic, people who could and wanted to get out of the UK over Christmas and New Year, whether they're allowed to or not, I don't know. But a lot of people came over here. Dubai was flooded with UK business, with Russian business, for example. And so Dubai actually had a very strong Christmas and New Year, 75 80% occupancy in the leisure resorts. And we saw the same in the Maldives. People paying thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a night, way above they had what they had been pre-pandemic to get to the Maldives, which was perceived as safe. The Maldives opened up, so you're going to see, I believe, as soon as international leisure destinations open up again, Thailand, Bali, Australia, New Zealand, they've all, you know, you can't travel to the US very easily at the moment. But once these destinations start opening up, leisure travel is going to come back. There is so, I mean, the pent-up demand isn't uh, just people saying it for the sake of it. There is. You just know that everyone you talk to can't wait to go on holiday, get away, and uh, get changed, reset the whole pandemic thinking, which has bogged us all down for the last 12 months. So leisure's going to come back, and then you've got all the things that didn't happen, the weddings that weren't celebrated, the birthday parties that weren't celebrated, all of the um, typical leisure activities involving friends and family that haven't happened for 12, 18, 24 months by the time this is open, over. So, and I also see people splurging money, spending more on luxury um, than they have. You know, we hear stories of luxury car sales rising and people investing in real estate and second homes because people have basically been saving a lot more money that they would have spent on flying around the world, going on luxury holidays. And that money's been saved up over the last 12, 18 months. So I'm, opti I'm an, optimist, an optimist about the recovery of leisure travel. When it comes to business travel, I'm a pessimist. And no one is going to convince me by the speeches that you hear about business travel is going to come back because everyone needs to travel for business. Face-to-face -face meetings are so important. The people saying that are the people whose livelihoods depend on it, which includes me, ironically. So I should be telling you business travel is going to come back. No problem. It's all going to be fine. And you should all be on the first plane to the next meeting as soon as, as, soon as you're able to. But the reality that we have to face is not one or two reasons why business travel is not going to come back. It's a multitude of reasons. First one is that no company in their right mind is going to go back to spending the sort of money that in 2019 on business travel because someone in corporate office puts their hands up and goes, oh, guess what? I want to spend 100 million on corporate travel next year. You're going to say the first thing that any board of any company is going to say is, is that strictly necessary now that we know how to operate virtually? We heard last year um, that Amazon, we heard, we, we read that Amazon saved $1 billion in business travel last year. $1 billion. Who's the person going to the Amazon board to tell them they should start spending a billion dollars on business travel again? I don't think that's going to be an interesting, well, it, it won't be a long conversation, I don't think, with, with their board. The second thing is risk. Corporations were always risk averse, and they're now even more risk averse. And COVID's just given all of the uh, the risk mongers in um, corporate, big corporates to, to reassess where they should be sending people and why and what the risks associated are to that. It was already becoming complicated for corporate travel. 
and now re the, the risk associated with health, about people getting stuck, about quarantines, about what happens, uh, who's going to pay all the insurances if, if something goes wrong. The third is the obvious one, which is just the health of pe people's health and people actually not wanting to take the personal risk to travel. So which overrides pe people's general previous desire to travel will be now people's desire not to travel because they see that as a, a personal risk. Us talking as we are today is probably the biggest reason why people won't travel as much in the future, and that's technology. I didn't know how to do a Zoom call a year ago. I now do it every single day, all day. That's all I do. And so the world has got used to operating virtually and to doing it successfully, doing presentations online, meeting people for the first time online. Um, and I think the final factor, which people may be underestimating, is the green reset that's going to take place. It's been bubbling underneath for a long time, the whole arguments about um, over-tourism, for example, um, about the impact of air travel on the environment. And I think this may be the moment when companies finally take a stance and say, no, we will not be seen to fly all of our employees around the world when we know it's not necessary. So yes, if you need to travel, by all means travel. But the idea that you're just going to you know, wander off to any uh, conference or event because it feels like a nice thing to do and you can catch up with industry colleagues, I think is a thing of the past, um, at least in the volumes that we knew before. And so I've just painted a pretty bleak picture. But give me counter arguments against all of those things and I struggle to find them. And I'm a pragmatist. So I believe we all know deep down that we need to look beyond business travel for the recovery in the hospitality sector and in the airline sector. And I think first class seats and business class seats are going to be occupied by leisure travelers in the future. And I think luxury hotels will be looking to a leisure traveler or a hybrid leisure and business traveler in the future as well. So I, I think it, it's a reset in so many different ways. We have been disrupted. We've been disrupted by so many things in the past. Now we've been disrupt, disrupted by nature, by mother nature with this, with this virus. And we just have to live with it. And we have to rethink um, how we're going to encourage people to travel for different reasons. Um, but for a lot of hotels, it would mean a complete rethink of, of what the future is going to look like and what kind of business they are going to make of the assets that they have. And that's why for the owner operator, the, the people that own the bricks and mortar, it's so important to, to understand and, and think really seriously about what the future looks like. Because going back to the old ways, I think, is, is not going to happen. The asset is always great to have because then you are in control what you can do. But actually what they need to do is like reinvent business models and the innovation capacity you need to, and the speed you need to do that in the moment uh, with the challenge, current challenge you have. And there's regional channels as well for, you know, we take the UK where Brexit is hitting uh, as well. Uh, and and there's, there's, a, there's a conversation. I don't know if this is a, a global phenomenon yet, but... There's talk about, especially in London, about talent and lack of it. Uh, some call it even, you know, uh, 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 they said it was difficult before. And actually, in the beginning of the pandemic, people said, oh, well, we come back. It's going to be easier to find people that want to have a job because we're going to be in a situation where people just want to have a job quickly. But now they've uh, figured out that many of the people that worked in these hotels, restaurants, especially in London, they moved back to their home countries. And they found a way of living life. They have now new habits. They don't have a need to go back. They don't have a desire to go back. 
Is that something you've seen between your members as well? Like suddenly there may be some talent challenges and is is that a, a global thing emerging from, from the, the overview you have or is that just a, a local thing here for the UK? I think it's a regional thing. I, I've always believed that the cultural perception of, of working in the hospitality sector varied enormously from market to market as I've traveled around the world and I've seen um, how young people in particular, because it's a young person's industry um, uh, primarily, uh, for whatever reason it, it's, it has been. But I started actually my career back in France and Italy way back when in the, in the late 80s. And what I loved about those countries when it came to hospitality is that it wasn't a young person's job. It wasn't a passing thing that you did when you're in your 20s. It was a career. And I think um, what's missing in certain parts of the world is the notion of hospitality as a career and not just as something you do for a couple of years and then move on to the next thing. And so that's a, a UK problem specifically. I think the UK has a problem less so in Central Europe. I, I think still today in France and uh, Germany and Italy, you have people that, that have a, a, a longer commitment to hospitality. They still view it um, as a nice career, something that they, they can be proud of all of their lives. But the downward pressure on wages, the movements away from uh, variable contracts so that you know, a lot, a lot of people in hospitality in the old days, the good old days, you'd hear them say we're paid percentages of revenue, for example, if you worked in a restaurant. So there was a huge desire to you could get paid very well, firstly. And secondly, uh, you were committed to the success of that restaurant. Now you're paid absolutely the minimum wage. You have absolutely the worst working conditions. And so it, 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 it's a young person sort of transient job, really. And I, I, I think. You see that definitely in the UK, to a certain extent in the United States. Um, although, to be fair, in the United States, um, they they still have this commission-oriented or tip-oriented culture um, that, that that helps people to... You, you definitely see in hotels people who've stuck around uh, a lot longer. I think in Asia, the, Asia's got a natural service culture that you see people um, very proud to work in the hospitality sector. And I, I, I'd like to think that Asia can become like I, I saw as a, as, as a young person myself in countries like France and Italy, where, where people feel that belonging to the hospitality sector is something you do for your career and not just in passing. But look, I, I, I'm sitting in a corporate office. I've never really worked in a hotel. I know from our brands, especially brands um, who've had a lot of um, workers within the European Union who've moved around, for example, and, and could freely move from country to country. Brexit's called problems, especially in that regard in the UK, I know. Um, I think rebuilding talent and rebuilding the relationships that the, that the people working in hotels had with customers. I mean, the idea that you go into a hotel and every time it's a whole new set of people working in, in the hotel, it, it's not great for long-term relationships, but, but to a certain extent, it's the nature of the world we live in now. It, there is so much choice for customers. And there's so much choice for people to move between different hotels. And um, I, I, I therefore think it will be difficult to rebuild for some hotels in certain locations to, 
to rebuild with good people because a lot of people will have moved on and, as you said, done different things. And that, that's a risk. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, when you mentioned Amazon before, they have really been taking a big take up of uh, service and restaurant people and hotels people because the, the service element, they just uh, we just get it from hospitality. We just understand how to talk to people and communicate. And I can see the, the quality in the drivers has uh, definitely uh, improved uh definitely where we live uh and i'm sure they have had some of them as i had some kind of hospitality background because they they come with a different energy to the door uh and it's a positive one you know and they want to make sure they've done a good job um and that's very interesting to see that maybe amazon is actually not only winning on a revenue base and they're saving costs as you mentioned but also they're getting some great people on board now because they had the opportunity for them when they needed it um, and then that can be quite costly for for the industry, I think, or, over time that we have lost, you know, especially on management level, that we lost these culture carers for, for some organizations. I totally agree. And that that's difficult to replace. It takes a long time to build and then it's quickly lost. And to rebuild that is takes time and it takes money. And I think the industry, to a certain extent, has lost the notion of rewarding the most important people um, in the right way uh, and, and, and made, you know, we're partly responsible by, by squeezing costs and squeezing costs and obviously rates in certain segments, we're talking about business travel earlier, rates in business travel have come down so much that you know, hotels have had to cut costs. Um, it, it's not been possible to service business travelers in the way they used to maybe 20 or 30 years ago, because simply the, the, the rates of business travel have paid uh, have dropped so much, and even pre-COVID. So it, it, it's something that the industry will have to think about. I don't have a direct involvement in that, but I can see those discussions and hear those discussions taking place uh, across our brands. And it, it's going to be an important part of how we emerge from uh, this crisis. You, you touch on it a bit, uh, Chris. You talked about the, the winners of tomorrow. They uh, understand to, to adapt very quickly. But is there some like kind of uh, traits these organizations have they will be the winners of uh, definitely the hotel world you were in involved in is, is seeing some early signs of how they have behaved and acted during the pandemic these winners i think so i think that the speed of how you adapt i think everyone can adapt pretty quickly these days at least can be seen to adapt quickly because digital marketing means that you can change your message you know from one day to the next almost i think it's what you're actually doing um to maintain a, a, a loyal customer base during a pandemic. Remember, a lot of these businesses have built their um, organizations around an international loyal customer base who basically hasn't been able to travel for the last 12, will it be 18, 24 months by the time we finish. And so what relationships have you maintained with these customers during lockdowns? And I think um, brands that have figured out how to stay relevant for customers, even when they're not traveling, um, will will do well post lockdown. What we've done, and I, I I'd like to think we're we're starting to do this quite well, is we've created this concept of live local and the concept of reaching out to your local community for your top customers who live there but would normally be loyal to you in other places around the world. In other words, if you live in Dubai until COVID, you probably would never have stayed in a hotel in Dubai. It's just like a bit of a crazy thing to do. Yeah, a few people did go out to the desert and did a bit of camping under the stars or something. But 
but generally speaking, you know, you might have gone to another Emirate, Abu Dhabi or something. But what we've done is we've looked to our database and said, who actually lives in Dubai, who was loyal to us in London or loyal to us in New York, loyal to us in Singapore, but they live here now. And how can we build a relationship to them? So we, we've um, looked to build a community of our discovery loyal members in, in local markets. And I can see that's definitely catching on. It's a natural thing to do. So I, I think what we're what hotels are going to have to do is understand more about how to engage with their local communities. I think hotels that do that well and have a product that makes them attractive um, are going to recover quicker. I mean, I, I give an example often of one of our new brands still has with Nikki Beach. Nikki Beach is known as a lifestyle brand. It's known as a party place for young people. Now, two interesting things. Nikki Beach had opened prior to COVID, but we brought Nikki Beach into Lions just before. So the question is, how are we going to make Nikki Beach popular internationally? Well, that wasn't going to be possible um, to a large extent um, during the lockdowns. But what we did is we managed to pitch Nikki Beach as a concept to the local market. And that also means opening up to new generation of customers. Because to be quite honest, Nikki Beach is not someone for someone like me at 50 plus. It's for someone like my daughter at 25. And so those are not travelers that we'd ever communicate with before because they haven't traveled at 25, but they're the sort of audience you want to be going to this sort of hotel. So this is just an example I'm giving you to give you a sense of how hotels have got to rethink their marketing strategies and go back to a more localized approach, which ironically takes you back to where hotels were in the communities back in the 1960s or 1970s when hotels became the place to be seen in a community for the well-heeled and, and, and wealthy. And um, I think we're going back to that to a certain extent. It's, and I, I, I like to see this sort of innovation and creativity. Um, I, I think it's good for businesses to rethink who their customers are and seek new customers. And I think COVID's prompting all of these thought processes. And I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, it's quite interesting because here I, I'm based in, in Brighton in the UK and I've seen um, when it was open and you can move around a local hotel. They were actually trying, they were not trying to be a co-working space, but they were definitely trying to build a community of a certain group of workers in a certain age group that normally would be on the train up to London. And they created that space with like a, you know, there was a food offering in that offering. And it's going to be interesting to see if that continued down that. But also they already pre-pandemic had invested in that relationship locally. So they were well-known, respected local business that did good for many things, involved in local things. And I've seen the same with the restaurants that's done really well on only takeaway. It's because they had that relationship prior. You could not live without your experience. You need to have it. And that's so interesting what you said, because it resonates a lot what I've seen as well. Like if you just started from cold in the pandemic to build that relationship, you probably struggle a bit more than, than others. But it's, yeah, it just resonated very well what I've seen as well. What about um, hotels normally goes for a good investment? It's a, you know, it's a bricks and mortar. It's quite a good business model. It, it never, almost never fails. Uh, so it's been quite easy to raise money for investors. And now you just told, you know, a, a very important business model for many hotels. Uh, and if I think about many brands in the UK, the hotels, the travel lodges and so on, you, you live in when you travel around the UK, which you're probably not going to, I can't see why I should do it anymore in any extent. 
what what about these you know investments are they are they still a good return of investment to invest in hotels or do you need to do a bit more due diligence than before well i mean clearly you want to do a lot more due diligence than you did before first question i'd ask is what type of hotel where and you know what what is your target uh, market for this hotel i think a resort hotel in the right location i i wouldn't hesitate to look at as a, a, a likely good investment. And I think it, it's really down to, there are going to be obviously buying opportunities for all types of hotels. The question is, you know, at what price point is a new investor gonna see themselves making a return? Now, some of it's going to come down to, you know, the level of risk, you know, what assets are high risk and low risk and our hotels, bricks and mortar was always considered to be relatively safe uh but you'd have to ask yourself a question today if someone was offering you let's say a hotel in central london or a hotel in central new york would you look at that investment differently to you might have done 10 or 20 years ago i think the answer is yes i'd be asking myself some fundamental questions about what is going to drive traffic back into big cities what type of traffic so if you're saying to me is London going to come back as a leisure destination? Absolutely. But how much of a typical asset in the center of London depended on leisure business, how much it depends on meetings, how much it depends on business travel? And so it's then the question is, well, if I go to invest in bricks and mortar, should it be residential? Should it be commercial real estate? Um, there, there are obviously very many different options um, as to what bricks and mortar can can generate in terms of a return. Um, will hotels be seen as attractive as they have been over the last 20, 20 years? It's gonna depend on the location, it's gonna depend on the city, but certainly the more a hotel or a location depended historically on meetings, corporate, business travel, um, the higher the risk, I think. Um, in other words, you, you're, you're going to look more skeptically at projections and say, okay, is this going to give me the sort of return that I would have got previously? Um, but it, it, it's interesting because if you ask me what I'd be investing in from a hotel point of view today, I'd be looking around the hotel business and saying, where is the money going to be? The money's going to be in franchising, which basically involves the marketing technology, financial technology. Um, I think looking at the needs of hotel businesses, in other words, what do the owners of bricks and mortars need? They're going to need a, a strong brand flag. They're going to need great technology. They're going to need great marketing, and they're going to be willing to pay for that to the right organizations. So I'd want to be in those sorts of organizations. I like to think we're one of those sorts of organizations. We're a marketing technology financial technology, becoming a financial technology company. We're launching a, a digital currency next year, for example, as our, our rewards platform. And so the these are the sorts of areas that I personally would prefer in, uh, prefer to be in. That isn't to say I don't see bricks and mortar as a good investment generally, but what you're going to use that bricks and mortar for, I think will look very different over the next couple of years. It really it, it's not an easy question to answer other than it will it will vary enormously from market to market. But if it was leisure, yes. If it's going to be city center, or as you say, suburban locations, travel lodges, Novotels, all of these sorts of uh, assets, 
big question. I think you are spot on the money there, Chris. Uh, what about yourself? Being true, you know, the last year has probably been, you know, mem- loads of people has been on the show and other CEOs I talked with have said this is the most transformative year they've been through. You know, there's so much they needed to learn and so much they are need to unlearn still. And we're still in this transition, as you said yourself. But, uh, is there anything you wanted to know <laughs> in the beginning of your career when you sit and look back today after the last storm here? And you say that, well, if I just had known that when I started out. I think I wish I understood when I was young, like I do today, how easy it is to disrupt the status quo. Technology has made it a lot easier, but it's taken me a long time in my career to accept that nothing stays the same and that everything you know and believe in and trust can be disrupted. And COVID's more bigger proof of that than anything else. I mean, who had on their risk assessment a global pandemic that would last for more than a year as a potential disruptor to their business? No one. But I, I, no one's told me and said, oh, no, I had it on my list of things to worry about. I, th- I think Bill Gates is the only one. <laughs> I, th- I think Bill Gates was yeah. Yeah, Bill Gates was the only one that had that on the agenda. And we all, I mean, we were all, in a way... Uh, very conscious as an unconscious laughing a bit uh, about it and then boom yeah but i think pre-covid you know i took that obviously it's been a huge disruptor i think looking back to my youth i wish i'd pushed harder at some of the doors i pushed out in terms of trying to force change through because when you're young you're very energetic you're full of ideas you're much more well, certainly speaking for myself much more innovative when i was young i was much more eager to change things you lose that high energy um, level um, when you get older for all sorts of reasons. But one of it's just pure metabolism slows down and your desire to do multiple things at the same time um, and, and change things uh, is not the same as you get older. And, and I didn't realize how easy it would, if I'd realized how easy it was to disrupt things, I'd have tried harder to disrupt things sooner in my career. Um, and, and I say to my children who are in their 20s now, I say, don't be afraid to follow your instincts and to try and change things and do things differently. Don't just follow the, you know, the line that, you know, the older people trot out to, you, you know, this is the way it's done. This is the way it will always be done. So, I, yeah, that, that would be the one thing I look back. I don't think with regret, but with um more astonishment as to how easy it is. We've, 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 whenever you get comfortable in life, you're going to be woken up. And I, I think um, technology as an enabler has, has made disruptions happen a lot faster in, in, in my career, certainly, but it's going to continue. And so my, my thought looking forward is if I'd known that 30 years ago, I'd have done more. Knowing what I do today, I'd encourage young people to think, you know, that basically any any instinctive idea you have is worth trying because it's it's possible. Uh, that's a really good reflection, Chris. So who has inspired you on the journey? Who is like your uh, your pillars of people that actually you know helped you on? It's it's funny because I'd say family's always been important because it gave me the confidence. Um, certainly. You know, for example, my, my father always taught me the value of relationships in business. 
he was a great one at saying you're going to meet loads of people in business that you don't like uh you don't like the way they work he said you know he always taught me that that you have to find redeeming features and everything find someone you something you'd like in every person every, every person you do business with find the one thing you like about them and and hook into that and and become close to um, on, on that basis, because personal relationships are so important. You can't afford um, to like every other person and then say, well, I'm not going to do business with that person because I don't like them. Or they're not like me, because so many people are different as you grow into business. You don't get to choose who you hang out with. You you just, um, unless you own a business, I guess. But so I, I've always felt that that was good good advice that I got. And, and you know, certainly from my wife, for example, even my children as I got older, is believing more and more that, as I said just a few moments ago, that anything is possible, giving you that confidence in life. Um, I think you need a supportive family. I, I found that very helpful is always, if you're doubting that you've got people around you saying, no, no, no that's a good idea, you should do it, or um, uh, you, you should push ahead. And Because you, especially as you get more senior in a company, it can get quite lonely. You don't have a lot of people around you giving you, telling you the truth. Um, good or bad, and um, I, I think that's that's very helpful. I had a a, a mentor who, at the time, uh, as my boss was CEO of uh, Kempinski, a guy called Reto Vitva. He, fantastic person, uh, and he he believed in people, and he especially believed in young people, and he loved giving people chances. And I think I was 29 or 30 when he said. That my boss, who was then head of sales and marketing, left Kabinsky. He said, "Look, you know, I'm going to give you the job." And I think, as I was as shocked as anyone, that that he he believed that I could do it. And um, he just loved giving people opportunities. He was also the one after the Lufthansa story and Lufthansa had sold, and we rethink the whole thing. He we started the alliance, and he said, "You should run it, run this alliance. It would be, you, you know, it's right up, you know, sort of thing you'd do." And you know, he went out of his way to make sure all the other people. You know, supported that idea, and you don't often meet people like that in business, and um, who give young people a chance. And I, I've certainly gone along with that. In fact, during COVID, when some people have left the business, just not 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 because we've we've let people go in particular, but because some people have have, have left the business and moved on. And I've used that as an opportunity to bring younger people into into more senior roles because I think that's that's very important because I benefited. From that, and then the one person that really influenced the alliance itself, and, and obviously I've been here for quite a long time now. But in the very early days, I was very fortunate to have a great friendship um, with the CEO of Star Alliance, who's a guy called Jan Albrecht at the time. Later went on to be CEO of Austrian and various other airlines. Actually, ended up nearby here and just retired after being with Saudi Saudi for for a few years. But one of the sort of almost godfathers of the airline industry and knew so much about alliances because he'd basically been the founding CEO of Star Alliance. And kind of all the principles that we brought into the creation of Global Hotel Alliance were built around the wise words that he gave me about how to how to build and how not to build um, an alliance. And we've stayed as a result um, very close to Star Alliance, the the airline um, alliance um, CEO today, um, Jeffrey Go, he joins a lot of our CEO our calls when we're talking to our CEOs about the, the pandemic, for example. Um, we share a lot of 
insights with the airline industry through Star Alliance. And so that was a huge um, personal um, influence for me in the early days of the Alliance. And I'd say to a large extent, the success of the Alliance in terms of the strategy we had and the long-term vision was built around a lot of the uh, wise words and experience that, that I got from, from that Star Alliance uh, influence. Great. Uh, there's some uh, some great people in there, and it's interesting how they they followed you for a long time. It's not people that has just dripped in and out. They've been been next to you for a long time. How do you then, as a, you just mentioned yourself as a CEO, Chris, especially in these times, but always it's cold on the top, it's lonely, uh, and then a pandemic on top of that. How do you turn up to be in your your best impact zone so you can actually deliver the best results and you know get the best out of your people. How have you managed to do that? Because I think a lot of people, that's what it's really been struggling, both if you're not a CEO, but also as CEOs, I've really seen that's been been the challenge because of the pressure and the overwhelm of things that needs to get done. Yeah, it's it's amazing how much pressure I've experienced over the last 12 months, but at the same time, how I've taught myself quickly to adapt to managing that pressure. I mean, a business goes from, you know, as I said earlier, turning over two billion to losing, you know, more than half of that within the space of days almost, it felt like. Um, knowing that you're going to lose money, knowing that you're going to run out of cash, knowing that you've got all of these people, and we're a small company um, uh, that, that depend on you to a certain extent. Um, it, it was interesting. The one thing that that changed for me was not traveling. I'd always traveled my whole life um and career and so whenever there was a problem i i went to meet the person and talk to them and that was always the best way i i felt of dealing with it. and suddenly you couldn't do that with with covid so it was like how are you going to manage all of this virtually i i think keeping to the same principles that communication is absolutely critical um so i taught myself very quickly how to use all these new media um from zooms and uh, online conferences to having all of our CEOs in roundtables virtually. Um, I, I, I found that was absolutely critical to maintaining confidence in the business. And um, it, it, in a cert, to a certain extent, I found that I felt more in control over the last 12 months because technology, uh, communicating through technology is so instantaneous and it's so easy. Whereas getting on a plane, at some point, something was going to go wrong in that you know, process of traveling from A to B. And, and of course, now that's not possible. Everything seems in a funny way more structured and organized. And whenever there's a problem, you, you feel you can address it immediately because it doesn't need you to fly halfway around the world to have a meeting to discuss it. Um, board meetings, whereas they used to happen twice a year, and we'd all get together for a couple of days. Now they're going on almost every day. Informally, I'm having meetings with, with board members all of the time. So I, I would say the one thing that, that uh, in, in a small business like ours, um, you know, when you're in a leadership role, it's communication is absolutely critical. And, and to me, being seen by my team to be available, whether it's, I say, my team that, that, that work for the Alliance, the shareholders in the business, which are some of these great hotel brands like Miner and Kempinski and, and Corinthia being regular contact with, with them all of the time. Um, I, I think the speed at which you respond to people, especially during a crisis, is critical. 
and also being very transparent about the problems you're having. I, I've found that I've we, we started having, which I'd never had before. We used to have, believe it or not, once every two years, we had a global meeting when all of our team from around the world got together. And once every year, we had a CEO meeting. I've started having calls at the beginning of the crisis weekly. And I would show on the screen our numbers. You know, guys, this is what's happening. This is how bad it is. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to give up some of our salary. We're going to have to go on short working weeks. We're going to struggle to survive this crisis. And I need all of you to, um, to, to work through it together. And, and we knew that it was going to be painful for everyone, but we, we kind of own, I owned the problem and shared that problem and talked about it with everyone. So everyone was aware. Um, and, and when it came to, to, to the painful decisions around salary cuts and some people furloughs and things like that, we were very, very open and transparent about why we were doing it and what people were obviously more vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. So it, 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 in one word, communication. And then is that the beautiful word transparency, which, uh, I don't know if you agree, but I believe it's here to stay in a way that we, we opened the book a bit more than we did before. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, as leaders because that's the only way to solve problems like this is to say this is this is the facts this is what we're up against and sometimes you get crazy solution that's heard what i heard from other ceos you get some solutions you haven't even thought about uh and I, i've tried that myself as well so wow i haven't thought about that that's a fucking great idea or i would say we have tried that but let's try it it's the pandemic uh so we have to do whatever we can do it's really really great uh chris uh, before we leave uh, you to get on with the day uh, Chris it'd be great to hear you know already given some really great advice and insights to 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 the audience out there but what if you were you know to give like you know some top three advice and it can also be two or one for leaders out there what is it that they should you know reflect do act on uh, in these times I, I mean, similar to some of the things I've just been saying, I'd say for me, the three things are firstly, you have to bring high energy to your role, because if you don't bring high energy, it won't be reflected in in um, the rest of your team. And during a crisis, you need to maintain energy levels. You can't let the crisis get the better of you. It's so easy if you're working from home and your salary has been halved and your prospects aren't looking good or you're worried about finances and your personal situation um, to lose the enthusiasm and energy to do anything. You know, it's sort of almost, you know, you can you can get depressed. And, 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 and so what I try and do is always bring high energy to the role. And I always say to the leaders in each of our departments, you've got to demonstrate energy and enthusiasm and, and belief in what you're doing. And, and that that energy um, infiltrates everyone in the organization if, if you do that. So that that's certainly the first thing I would say to people. Uh, I I also think, um, despite the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic, we can't travel, we can't meet people. Maintaining relationships is so important. Um, keeping humor in everything you do, trying to laugh at some of the awfulness of the situation. Again, not you know, it, it comes back to what I said. It's not allowing ourselves to get depressed by circumstances. And I. I try and maintain levels of humor. I get them, you know, we, we have internal quizzes and games and, and videos that people produce of some of the things they're doing in lockdown, just trying to keep people distracted, if you like, in a positive way from some of the, 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 the difficult things that they're, they're, they're dealing with. Um, and, and that's all part of communications and relationships and keeping, keeping people close. 
Um, and then I, I think my, my last advice to all leaders is, is goes back to what I said about um, beware how easily everything gets disrupted and COVID's woken us all up to that. Um, but we've, technology is accelerating so fast and you know the big winners of this pandemic have been the big tech companies. We've got to embrace technology, and I, I struggle with that all the time. You know, in a hotel, it's all about hospitality. It's all about people. It's all about, you know, great food and beverage experiences, uh, wonderful rooms and spas, and all of these things are very personal. But unfortunately, technology in the meantime is taking over everything that's happening. And um, I think whether it's hospitality or other sectors, you've got to, as a leader, continually to ask the question, what technology do I need for my business to compete? Otherwise, I will be disrupted and someone will take it away from me. And Uber, as an example, you know, you know, no one, the, the taxi mafias around the world could never have imagined that, that within the space of a couple of years, this, an online app could basically disrupt their business forever. Um, I think in the hospitality sector, we have to keep asking ourselves, what big disruption is coming and it's going to come from technology so we need to be thinking about that all of the time and looking at how we're embracing new technologies and um, adapting our businesses to to prepare for them um i don't have any of those answers but you have to as a leader be asking those questions all of the time great great chris those are some really good advice and uh, i think the last one really resonate with people right now how we actually get technology to do the uh the, the, the heavy lifting and, and remember it's a businesses as you said indirectly is all about humans so we have to remember to sustain these relationship and, and keep human as well as a as it's difficult so chris thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your your journey and incredible valuable advice uh, where can people uh, find you if they want to get in touch with you well i'm uh, in dubai i'm uh, on LinkedIn, and I'm getting quite good talking technology at responding to LinkedIn. Um, you can follow Global Hotel Alliance on LinkedIn. You can find me personally, Christopher Hartley, on LinkedIn. Um, you can send me an email personally, Christopher.hartley at gha.com. That's nice and easy. Um, you can find out everything you might want to know about our alliance on uh, globalhotelalliance.com. Again, very easy to remember. Um, if you want to know about the Discovery Loyalty Program from a customer perspective, then it's discoveryloyalty.com. And um, anyone out there in the hospitality sector, especially independents that likes the sound of what we do, drop me an email, read about us on, on those sites that I mentioned. Um, I'd love to talk. Great, Chris. Thank you so much for, for coming uh, along to the show. And we send power and energy to you and the team and the Alliance. Thank you, Michael. Great talking to you. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your stories and insights and wisdom on how to navigate the stormy winters we're in right now and how the future could look for the travel market. If you want to get more insights about how to reinvent in your hotel business, please also visit our episode 88 with Larry Corman, who is the president of AKA Hotel Residencies on Being 3D. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights and strategies and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. And check them out at BizSimply.com. 
or on their social at bisimply or bisimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bisimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our community and download free leadership tools at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and be maverick.